0: Hi, Mage fans, this is your host Terry Robinson with Mage the Podcast, and today on the show we're discussing how movies, movie language, and the history and production of cinema can inform your Mage games. My guest today is noted seer of things, Yui. Yui, how you doing?
1: I'm doing real good. Just came off of seeing the new Top Gun film, so I'm full of the maximum amount of cinema that you can possibly have shoved in your eyeballs via the (laughs) IMAX screen.
0: Is it true IMAX, like where they hand you a 400 watt speaker to like point directly at your genitals as it is playing? Or is it like the fake one where they just like shove everyone towards the screen 10 feet?
1: Oh, it's the fake one. Come on, Terry. I'm not that bourgeois.
0: Philadelphia has the Tuttleman Omniverse Theater where I saw Pacific Rim in it and you could not, the field of view is such that, and the screen size is such that I could not see the top and bottom of a Jaeger at the same time. (laughs) And it was just a lot of vertical scrolling and it is glorious and you leave the theater absolutely deaf. And for reasons I don't understand, they don't play trailers beforehand for anything at the Franklin Institute. So that's always a little bit weird. So what are kind of your bona fides as a movie person? Do you have a background in it? Are you just an average uh, moviegoer? How many films do you see something in a year? Do you like talking about it? Just uh, give us a little bit of information about your relationship to movies.
1: It's been a passion of mine ever since I was a kid. And my dad introduced me to movies like Predator and Alien at the ripe old age of six. And ever since then, I've been kind of impressed and astonished by the variety of cinema and just everything that's possible out there with what you can do and what you can accomplish and you know what people want to do in the first place around five years ago i basically decided you know what i could just basically become a film critic i just can go to the you know as many movies as i can see in the local theater and come out of that and just give my thoughts on them online and then you know write things about it and i can just do that i've been doing this for the past five years and i've went from seeing uh, like around like 300 movies to seeing over 3,000 <laughs> and I try to do, you know, at least one movie a day and, you know, write something about it, write my thoughts and slowly kind of get better at that task of articulating myself. And, you know, I write things for uh, letterbox and Patreon and YouTube. And so when it comes to that, um, it's just very much a, a passion that's been with me for so many years now.
0: Talking about movies, to me, we're we're, we're talking about like cross modality where we're switching from one thing to another and to me rpgs are kind of sometimes stuck in this place where we have a notion of what storytelling should look like and we just kind of do that without a huge amount of variety to it Uh, movies came out of simply filming a play with a fixed camera that was locked in place and it took us a couple decades to figure out what A movie was capable of doing. A lot of role-playing games presume a linear structure where the action goes from scene to scene. Everything is in real time or slower, and our games, to me, can be much improved by abstracting away boring bits and using film theory to improve things. So I'd like to start with just kind of some film terms and how we can use them in the game. Your action-adventure game may have a theme song where a more noir type game may have voiceovers and other narrative contrivances that are just kind of associated with it. First one is establishing shot. What's an establishing shot?
1: An establishing shot in cinematic terms is where you point the camera at a space that you want the audience to be contextualized, to be the space that things are going to occur in, right? So if you're making a Western, your establishing shot of a scene is a saloon or the desert landscape or, you know, the Rocky mountains or whatever, you're showing the audience, Hey, this is the context and here's the situation and here's the particulars of it.
0: And in a game to me, I think the establishing shot is, is pretty powerful. Usually it is a comparatively wide shot. The, the space itself is kind of what we're focusing on more so than any characters or what have you. If your characters are about to have a syndicate board presentation or go before a tribunal, I think it makes sense to narrate an establishing shot. The room in Horizon that will hold your fate holds the weight of 500 years of accumulated history seemingly hanging in the air. Wood from extinct trees painted with paints using pigments that do not exist of this realm, line the wall where the justices will sit in judgment of your fate. And I think it gives you kind of a clear mental image of what could happen, or at least assists with it. It gives us a sense that there is a place before and after the characters engage with it. And to me, this is very important, especially in games where you're dealing with nodes and reality zones where the place itself can almost be a character. The next one I have is cross cutting what is cross cutting
1: cross cutting is the use of editing to juxtapose two alternate scenes together and to play them out usually concurrently with each other so you'll have you know one thing going on in a different location another thing will going on in a different somewhere like miles away minutes away whatever you're cutting across you know time and space, but you're presenting them as one after the other and kind of uh, collapsing those emotions into the same thing.
0: And and this kind of relates to another term that I'll kind of talk to together, uh, the Kuleshov effect. What is that? The Kuleshov effect is another form of editing where
1: you essentially are doing cross-cutting, juxtaposing two seemingly unrelated images, but through the juxtaposition, you're gaining a thematic uh, idea or emotion or meaning, or you're telling a story, by contrasting two apparently different things. So cross-cutting, you're just telling two things at the same time. Cool shot effect is named after an editing pattern where an action takes on a larger thematic meaning, right? So it can go from a person's face kind of having a, you know, a pretty sneering kind of reaction. And if you juxtapose that with them uh, signing someone's house into foreclosure or them picking up a, a, a brand new baby kitten, right? you're going to have as an audience member. And as a viewer, you're going to have a different relationship to that sneering person, right, depending on what it's juxtaposed with. So it can have a variety of meanings. And you can, you know, feel this, uh, this world exploding in front of your face without the director actually having to show that much. It's just, you know, point A, point B, but then you provide the C in between.
0: And in a game, I could very much see this as a way to humanize or dehumanize a character that you're encountering. For instance, you are being pursued by a a black suit, and as you're going, with each beat of that chase, the storyteller cuts something in to either humanize or dehumanize it. So they are chasing you down a narrow alleyway, just absolutely bolting. You are trying to keep ahead and the storyteller cuts in them doing something very similar of them chasing down their child who is running away from them giggling and the parent is yelling like, uh, come back here and, and back to our game, the same thing is happening. One of the recurring themes is if you're going to use a filmic setup, it is frequently the case that it is for the players and not the characters. So you need a game that will accommodate that. Some players are very uncomfortable with the idea of storytellers giving them any information their character wouldn't have. And we'll talk about stance theory in a little bit, but once we free ourselves from that, we can use a lot of these techniques and setups to give something to the eye of the player. What is a bird's eye view or crane shot?
1: Bird's eye view or crane shot is simply a matter of perspective where you're taking the camera and you're using it essentially to gain a perspective that's usually not accessible to the average person unless they're in kind of a weird location so you're providing usually a semblance of objectivity to a scene, right? So if, you know, like, like a crane, like a movie crane is this big mechanical apparatus. And if you've got the camera attached to it, you're essentially, you know, putting the camera in a non-human position, kind of a God's eye view. And, you know, if you're panning over like a, a town or some kind of object or whatever, then you're definitely, you know, from that vantage point, you're providing a sense of context
0: that isn't just
1: an establishing shot, but can also take you out of a subjective point of view in the movie and provide clarity in a scene.
0: And to me, one of the powerful things about a bird's eye view is generally they are somewhat fast in the sense that this is not always a long lingering shot. It is just something that kind of gives you a sense of scale. So your characters are entering a steel foundry. And from their perspective, they see the front of the building, which may seem large and imposing, but they don't have a full idea of how large it is. So introducing a bird's eye view or a crane shot where it essentially says the camera pans over the hundreds of acres that this facility fully encompasses – and your characters get a sense of its enormous size that once they enter here, they're practically entering a new world. That is something that you can say, but to me, rather than just communicating this vague feeling that a character would have, providing that filmic explanation for some tables will be more immersive. Other people will kind of find it annoying. The next one I have is a needle drop. What is a needle drop?
1: Yeah. A needle drop is just essentially playing a piece of music that is not explicitly made for the movie. Um, so as opposed to score, right, which is made by a composer, a needle drop is saying, you know, okay, here's this pop song, we're going to put it in here because it, I feel in some way that it fits the scene. And if you're a GM or storyteller doing this, I would say this is a, an essential tool in your tool belt. If you're going to be running something that does have that perspective of like, usually is discussing a particular theme. So if you open a game with a particular song, you know, that's what a needle drop is, right? And depending on how frequently or infrequently you wanna use them really makes a huge difference in games that I find because music and film is ambience, usually with score, whereas with needle drop, it's often used in the way of montage or, you know, kind of a propulsive uh, way of engaging with the scene.
0: And this is also useful because your game may, for instance, have a theme song and you can have a running idea that our goal is to include that diegetically within the game periodically. This is something at our tables where we can literally play the song, but it is frequently the case that, I don't know about you, but I hear music constantly out in the world and somehow in the world of darkness, that is never actually uh, specifically stated. So to me, it is adding realism to be like, this is the music that is occurring in this scene music in games to me are, is hard to do. People have a tendency to play a, a song. It's very difficult. Yeah. So it is not uncommon for me to have a 15 second snippet or something that I then fade down. There is almost no umbral court to me that should not have an accompanying musical tag of, of between 10 and 30 seconds. And playing that while describing it to me is, is reasonably powerful to give you a sense of the space. Realize that it can both be something that you use at a table to set mood and something that exists in your game world. The next one I have is mise-en-scene. What is that?
1: Uh, mise-en-scene is a much-abused word in the film landscape that essentially just means composition. It's how things are arrayed with what you're portraying, how many elements there are, how they're arranged within each other, within the space of the, the frame of the film camera. The, the arrangement of that, but also you know how they're made apparent to us, right? So... You know, filming a coffee cup from 17 different angles is going to make you feel differently about what that coffee cup is or where it is in the relationship of the movie. For storytelling, I'm definitely of the opinion that if you're going to use a concept like mise-en-scene, essentially what this means is control. It's control of how many NPCs are in a scene, of how much description you're putting out, how little description, what music tracks are being played, what players are in a scene, which players aren't in a scene. And who's talking? Who's not talking? It's making a decision of okay, what am I actually going to focus on? Be- doing that as a storyteller, it, it's a constant push and pull relationship. And it's not like in a film where you know you put it in front of the camera and it mostly stays there, right? Like it's exactly what you want it to be. In GMing and storytelling, it's a negotiation. I find it best, and it's probably I would say the most essential. Part of the game is just making those tiny choices on a case by case basis of, you know, does this person have to be here in this scene or does this element have to be there? You know, it's the Chekhov's, you know, gun thing, right? If you put a void engineer, a void ship, in the hangar bay of this uh, this technocracy amalgam, sooner or later your players are gonna be like, huh, what's that void ship doing there? Maybe we should <laughs> like do something with it, right? That's mise-en-scene, that's, okay, you took an element, you put it there, now it has to serve some function, right? Everything that you put in the center of the attention of the players has to serve some function.
0: I like the idea of Chekhov's void ship. I would like that to formally enter the canon of mage. The thing to me about uh, mise-en-scene is that It gives a good list. I think that there are presumptions made about how the world is presented, that frequently a storyteller will describe the people. If you are lucky, you will get a physical description. If you are luckier still, you will get some information about posture. But I almost never get information about all the other elements. How is the scene lit? What is the spatial relationship between elements? If we don't care what the objects are, what is kind of the white space and the, uh, the, the black space of, of that scene? How are things colored? What is the perspective of the character? We tend to either get these omniscient views of what is happening in a room or a place or just what the characters see. There's a sense of framing and composition that you can add, the clutter of props that may be in a hermetic laboratory versus a poetry recital that a a postmodern romantic is doing in a graveyard. Don't hesitate to list out these things there's a way to do it such that it is obvious that it is seen in setting and that not everything listed is kind of important and i am perfectly comfortable as a storyteller pointing directly at that and saying not everything in this scene is important but these are the things that you see it is important to me to indicate the color quality and direction of the light i feel that is one of those things that can very quickly establish the tone of a game the differences between a sodium vapor Bulb cutting through fog shining down on a meeting that is happening in a empty parking lot versus the greenish hum of fluorescent light bulbs as you go through the seemingly endless corridors of where this office warren meets up with the paths of the wick to become the null zone that light quality is an important thing to me so. If you're a storyteller, I would look up one or two things on the elements of Maison scène and just be like, hey, are there any of these that I can sprinkle in? And at least for me, when I started doing that, I felt that my descriptions got a lot better.
1: If you're describing a hermetics library, right, and the players walk in and they're like, okay, we're here to do something, da-da-da-da-da, yes, it's in theory a good idea to, you know, be like, oh, I want to add flavor. Here's all the names of the different books on the shelves, and here's the here's the little, you know baby wyvern you know in a cage and here's the candles that are lit in a specific way that's all great that's awesome that's a writerly impulse you are writing that scene and that's good part of gming is fundamentally and some of writing but you need to realize that when the players go into that scene and they go in with one purpose and then suddenly you hit them with a face full of oh yeah here's all these uh here's you know uh mordech mystical wristwatch you know, in a glass case. Um, and you have no idea what that fundamentally is, you just added that for flavor. Nine times out of 10, I will tell you the players will fixate at least one of them <laughs> fixate on one of those objects. And they will say, Oh, what's this? This seems like a story or seems like some kind of plot hook that the GM is throwing at me, because why else would they include it? So when we're talking about Chekhov's void ship, nothing wrong with that, right? You need to understand that that's something you're leaving in the hands of the players, you're not having control of that. Um, because once they follow that you have to follow it up you can't be like oh well, actually it's not important and i just described it for the hell of it because that's to me that's a cop-out you can't be doing that so just when you loosen the slack on the description and when you portray something that's not necessarily necessary do it at your own peril but also at your own benefit you know it's a it's a give and
0: take thing And I am perfectly comfortable indicating that something is not important. I very rarely have dinguses in my game. I very rarely have red herrings in my game. I just, uh, the nature of my play is I'm playing once or twice a month if I'm lucky. And I just don't have time with that. So it is not uncommon for me to say, hey, what is your goal in this scene? To establish it and then to run through it from there with the presumption that that is all that will be done. So pre-conversation, player expectations. What's a montage, Yui? It provides you with a wide degree of
1: sensation. Via the editing pattern, that's not necessarily spatially related, but you know you're engaging with the Kulishov effect to a massive degree, where you're, you know, associating a rocket ship, you know, with, a, you know, a band singing a song about love or something. It's that kind of effect that can be achieved um, just by, you know, really having an intense editing rhythm. Some films are edited entirely according to montage patterns, and there's just nothing outside of the montage, like the films of Tony Scott. So when you have a montage, it's often, you know, nowadays it's specifically accompanied by like, oh, here's where the music plays. You know, sometimes montage sequences can just be, uh, you know, different bits of information layered on top of each other.
0: And to me, the montage is important because it allows us to depart from a one-to-one action of reality versus what we have happening in our game. A montage allows for a lot of narrative compression. A montage can span uh, minutes, seconds, years, or decades and I think in major yeah, need you're to be, bridging
1: time, yeah,
0: we need to be perfectly comfortable to pull that off the shelf to be to say, hey, we're going to have seven months pass by in the next five minutes. Every one of you gets one scene as a stand in for what you were doing during that time. And I, I think it is remarkably powerful. And I strongly recommend tables use montages when dealing with downtime or a whole bunch of characters acting at the same time. The other thing that Yui's brought up a couple times is the idea of cuts, cross cutting, interleaving, is moving action back and forth. It is pretty common to switch around the narrative focus. Sometimes I am at a table where there's two different groups of people who are doing different things in different locations. And they just do, we're gonna deal with the people doing the bank vault break-in until completion. And then over here, we're gonna cut to the people who are doing, we're going to, once that is done, have the people who are engaged in building an escape vehicle do their thing. I generally find it much more interesting to cut between the two where possible. And one of the things that at least I feel I have developed as a storyteller is we can take advantage of the presumption that if a cut occurs, that the things are somehow related or that they are just close enough that we think about them both at the same time to kind of create parallels in games. Uh, You have characters breaking into a bank vault contemporaneously. You have someone trying to convince someone else to join your chantry. In a way, both of them are trying to break into something or trying to get something that isn't necessarily theirs. And I think those kind of implied parallels can be pretty powerful and interesting in a game. Mind you, it can those- sometimes, yeah, it can also work the opposite accidentally.
1: Yeah, and those parallels, I mean that's the collage effect. That's exactly what it is. That's mm-hmm. in, you know, the end of The Godfather 1 where, you know, he's having his child baptized but then also having all his enemies killed and it's constantly going back and forth between them in the montage. Like you're creating a thematic idea out of two things that would apparently otherwise not necessarily be related.
0: Mm-hmm. And sometimes in a montage if I want to build tension, I will introduce montage scenes that do not involve the characters. If the alarm goes off, I think it is important to cut away to the security guard who taps the screen and maybe goes back to sleep for another five minutes before catching some element in a view screen that indicates, uh, maybe I have to do something. What is shot reverse shot?
1: Uh, shot reverse shot is just a simple way of covering a conversation. So you're taking two conversants and having them, you know, the camera be on one, and then when the other person's talking, uh, or you want to cut to the other person, you know, reacting to what the other person's saying, A is talking, and then you switch to B, who then says a response, and vice versa, um, some variation thereof. In terms of GMing and storytelling, I would definitely just say that shot-reverse-shot is like a very efficient way of covering a conversation, just so you know, like everything is very contained, everything is, you know, only one person is in focus
0: One of the important things for shot reverse shot is one, it it frequently can break the idea of directionality that elements on one side of the screen are associated with one thing and elements on the other side of the screen are associated with something else. Like if we were to just film two people in profiling conversation in RPGs, this is powerful for me because the characters are obviously the main characters in their own story, but I think doing shot reverse shot and describing it as such in games reminds you that NPCs and antagonists are their own protagonists. So when we do shot reverse shot, we get the obvious view of going back to the Hermetic Laboratory, the characters sitting down at this desk and talking to this Bonnie Sages character and you see the array of books behind them, but when we go to reverse shot, it gives us a way of showing what the NPC is seeing. So, we cut to the NPC's view and you see three haggard characters who aren't even at the adept level, who have just come in out of the rain, who don't have sufficient mastery of forces to keep themselves dry. They have tracked mud in. They didn't have overshoes or wellingtons to go with it. One of them is carrying a raven familiar. It allows you to remind the players of what they look like. And I think that is powerful to say, this is how the NPC sees you. The next one I have are kind of like theories of film and they are realism, classicism, and formalism. What are they?
1: Essentially three different theoretical approaches that you can Use And not just for film. Realism is the idea that a film should represent reality in some form or another. That is a very vague idea. It is an idea that I have a lot of contentions with, uh, in as much as we're talking about, you know, whose reality and in regards to mage, whose reality is a very, very, very important question, because realism in a game of uh, technocrats is very different from realism in a game of hollow ones um, realism in the guise of film is usually applied to you know nothing ideally should be achieved with the editing or camera movement that cannot be achieved via a human being having a perspective in the scene it's a very anthropocentric idea of what film language or constitute and so when you know you're having realism in a game Ideally, what you're meaning is subjectivism, where everything like, you know, if you set a game in a realistic pattern, this doesn't mean that like, you know, things are, you know, grounded, and they're just commonsensical. Again, if you have that amalgam, they exist in a reality that makes sense to them, everything is oriented around their fundamental assumptions, right? So a realistic technocracy game, according to their paradigm, all the traditionalists are, you know, raving lunatics and the marauders are even more raving and even more (laughs) lunatic. And it comes with a set of assumptions on technocratic agents are fundamentally right. Here's their reality. I would say the realistic formulation would be you're not abolishing a sense of time or space too much. You're not cutting between two locations very heavily things are almost um, continuous, right? You're trying mm-hmm. to avoid actually engaging with the artifice of the cinematic apparatus. And so when you put it to a game, in, in storytelling, you're trying to minimize yourself, essentially what that is. You're trying mm-hmm. to abstract yourself as much as possible from the game and make it seem intuitive and just like everything is happening in the world instead of as your imposition. Uh, classicism is a... Essentially, what we think of as the Hollywood mode of storytelling. It's not like film to theater, right? Like film to theater, in a sense is realism because you're not broaching anything with you know trickery. like what you see is what you get. Mm-hmm. classicism is you're still telling the same narrative, right? There's nothing you know that different about it, but as an approach, you're more or less free to take a subjective point of view with the camera. so you're not going into it being like, oh, well, the camera has to be locked in this position because this is where a real-life person will be able to see these events, right? Now, you know, with classicism, you bring in the cranes, you bring in the fades, the dissolves, the special effects, the, you know, the kind of the, the glitzy artifacts that Hollywood, especially in the, the golden age, it was known for where, you know, it's, it's reality, but it's larger than life. It's a bit kind of glammed up and, you know, outsized and things are exaggerated slightly, but that's to communicate a larger-than-life effect, right? And classicism... Now the camera's moving around and say like a character. And when a character sits up off a desk or a bench, the camera moves with them, right? If they're the protagonist, the camera follows them around. When, you know, they enter into a door, there's an edit. And then suddenly they enter into another place. Now we're taking the subjective aspects of the camera and using that as a strength to tell stories. When you use that in a game, that's when as a GM, now you can start incorporating things that are like, you know, and and people don't want to talk about this, but the GM fundamentally does impose their own viewpoint and their own will. The GM is a player. You know, if you're storytelling, you're a player, whether you like it or not. And you're playing NPCs, you're describing things in a certain way that when, you know, there's no objective way that you can write a description, you're describing it from your own point of view. Instead of, you know, Carol, uh, walking down the stairs, she gracefully descends the stairs, you're adding these subjective flourishes, you're getting away from the minimalism of the realistic approach and you're indulging in a a heightened aspect.
0: It, It seems to me that kind of our default is that we run realist games, which to me is a little bit ironic with Mage in that the question is like, what is the truth that is being told? And that maybe a lot of the things that we're discussing are how to introduce something closer to a Hollywood perspective or more classical or classicistic way of doing it. Then what is formalism?
1: You know, the previous two modes were fundamentally about portraying a narrative, right? It's, we're telling a story that is the prime mode of, you know, we're debating on how to do it, whether we want to embrace the artifice or reject the artifice, but that's, you know, we're still fundamentally in the mode of, okay, this happens and this happens, and we're interested in those particular effects. Um, Formalism in film is, you're taking almost an exclusive focus on the technical aspects of a movie. So you're paying very much attention to, you know, the music, the sound, the set design, uh, um, how things are edited, you know, where they're edited. So it, it no longer becomes the narrative is king, you know, we're like, I, I write a script, and I have to just film the script as it says to be, you know, filmed, right? With a formalist approach to understanding how movies are produced. It's no longer just, we do this for like a, a straight up communicative effect now it becomes what instance of technical observation and that artifice can serve as the point of the exercise itself when making a movie so the lighting now becomes take the example of the godfather right that story is you know you know mostly pretty close to the book it's based on right that's a literary artifact what the book doesn't have is the extremely, extremely dark shadows and lighting that the movie has done by Gordon Willis, the cinematographer, where people's eyes are like these tiny glints in this immense series of you know shadows and you know blotches and and uh, hazy smoking rooms where these back deal uh, you know mob stories are told. That that is a formalist approach where now we're just taking the layer of artifice and now that becomes its own end. And you're essentially, you know, allowing that to more or less specialize itself into its own little corner. So with storytelling, I think this approach is, you know, are you going to have really flowery descriptions of locations? Are you going to, you know, not have, you know, extremely flowery, but, you know, kind of paired back and almost two-fisted, I would almost like, like Hemingway-esque uh, descriptions of things. Are your NPCs, are they all going to, you know, fit a certain theme? Or are they all going to communicate the same idea when you're creating them? That's like, you know, it's all Verbena Chronicle, right? Suddenly, a foremost approach is, okay, every element needs to correspond to something about the Verbena. If we have plants, we have, you know, themes about life, we have characters dealing with, you know, topics that the Verbena traditionally associated with, you know, dealing with. And we have ecological themes and all this. So now it's no longer just, oh, here's the story about these people. Now it's, Here's a theme. Here's a concept in the foremost approach to storytelling. Here's the grand notion. Here's the techniques I use to communicate that with. And then here's a story that goes on within that giant compositional structure.
0: And this is something where I would probably use the term stylized, where it is something where One chooses whether or not the characters are maybe aware of these, but it is also, again, something that is being played up theoretically for the players. When you talk about the dark brooding lighting that is is shining on the mafioso who is bargaining away their tasks for the magically enhanced cocaine you have created when they're wearing that bright pinstripe suit and the street light is hitting them just so, this is one of those things where you get to choose do we want that kind of game or not? And I think taking it from an unconscious choice where you just kind of have this model and default to something that is more selected is something that can potentially improve your game. And kind of the last one for me is what is auteur theory? Uh,
1: so auteur theory. This was... Originally, the auteur approach or the auteur method—I forget—originated in the 1950s and 60s by a film journal called Cahiers du Cinéma, who produced filmmakers like Francois Truffaut and Jean-Luc Godard, um, very seminal French filmmakers. And they got started as critics, and you know they looked at like the classical way of analyzing a movie, right? Where it was okay—you have, you know, everyone has their own distinct little parts. Everyone does a single job, right? The actors act the you know the cinematographer lights and then the director you know moves the camera and then does this and the editor edits producer produces it's an assembly line essentially right it's the factory fordian approach developed in like the early 20th century capitalist model applied to artistic cinema and you know in the classical Hollywood model that's what was kind of assumed is like okay it's not really the result of any one person singular thing. It's everyone is making these tiny little choices and movements. And if anything, the producer was the kind of the shepherd of everything, you know, the person who was putting money behind it because they were getting everyone paid, right? The auteur theory was created essentially to argue that actually the director of the film is the person who essentially sets the tone and the ideas and everything that's important about what the film is going to be. And this notion was picked up by American film critics like Andrew Sarris. And Andrew Sarris was read by people like Francis Ford Coppola and Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. And his influence in, you know, what is an auteur, right? Like, what is an author in movies? Like, a singular author. Like, you know, when you when you read a book, right, it has one author usually. Like, people, you know, maybe they edit it. Maybe there's, you know, typesetting. But one person wrote the words, right? And their task was to say, okay, who is the author for a movie and they settled on the idea of the director as being the kind of person who funnily makes the real choices that have the most outsized effect on what the end artistic product is
0: and and this is kind of interesting because it asks the question so who is in control of a game and frequently The answer given is the storyteller or the players or some mix. But again, this is one of those cases where making it an explicit choice, I think, is important. Sometimes I go out and say, hey, I have a very specific idea for a game with theme and mood are players interested? In other cases, the players take control and it's just kind of this madcap sandbox game. And again, I'm not proposing that people try and be auteurs at their table, but just a specific discussion of who is supposed to bring what to the table, I think can really improve a game. And that's kind of why I wanted this commentary on um, this idea in film of of who is in charge or who is responsible.
1: This is a massively debated notion in... Anything having to do with film, the idea that, you know, films being the compositions of so many uh, sets of, you know, talents of, you know, stunt people and musicians and caterers and everyone like these are massive industrial productions. And so the idea of saying, well, actually, this one person is really the most important part is controversial, to say the least. But it's also the reason why we talk about guys like Steven Spielberg, because before Steven Spielberg, similar uh, directors like him kind of, you know, really took this notion to heart, you know, back in the the old Hollywood days, even to a large degree now, no one really cared about who the director was. They were, they were here to see the movie. they were here to see the star, right? Maybe the writer, maybe if you like the book, the movie was based on, right? If you, if you like Gone with the Wind, the book, here's the movie, right? That was the idea. Like the idea of the director was this nebulous, kind of shadowy figure behind the scenes that you know wasn't really understood by the film public to be that important. When applying this to storytelling, this is an extremely, mm-hmm. I, I would say, I, I don't even think we're at a position of truly understanding how to even approach this. But some sketches towards the idea, I would say, if you're a storyteller, if you're a GM you cannot be a tyrant you can you cannot do the the film director thing if you want to model yourself after that of you know commanding people what to do and telling them that this is what's going to happen if you come up with a great idea for a game and you propose it to your players that's awesome keep in mind that they are composing that game just as much as you are and they can add things that are unconventional and unsuspected and things honestly that are better than whatever ideas you had if you're taking a cinematic viewpoint your players are your stars and your stars are going to the, you know they're there for a purpose, but also they're there to do what they want to do.
0: Yeah, generally for me, it's a case where the storyteller has the power to dictate conflict, but they do not have the power power to dictate resolutions. In most cases, yeah, they can
1: set up a situation, right? You set up the scenario, you don't control what people do in this scenario.
0: Moving from that, one of the ideas that I think is also kind of important is something called stance theory. Uh, GNS theory was an attempt to kind of Typify how role playing games work. It kind of asks the question of so, what point of view do the players have? And the four basic ones are actor stance, where what a player chooses for their character to do is based on what the character wants and knows. There is very little outside information. You are trying to inhabit a character and figure out what they want. And this is the default for a lot of people to some extent. Beyond this is author stance, which is decided on what the character wants but retroactively explaining some of it. Author stance I think is pretty natural when somebody realizes hey my character is not going in a direction I want. I want them to go somewhere else, but I don't want to have some catastrophe befall them. So hey, I'm going to introduce some background information that may redirect where they want to go. Another stance is director stance, which is making decisions affecting the environment instead of the character. And for me as a player, I always want the storyteller to have a little bit of ability to directly nudge the character and I always want the ability of a player to directly nudge some of the setting. I feel perfectly comfortable describing the look on a character's face if something with a straightforward response kind of occurs, and I want the players to feel comfortable helping me populate the world with elements. Director stance is usually represented by the game master. And the final one is Pawn, which is uh, decides what they want for their character without explaining the motivations, and it doesn't necessarily need to make sense, it's just kind of there as a uh, expedient. To me, one of the things is how dogmatic someone wishes to be about actor stance. Uh, Some people want to so thoroughly not have their player character experience tainted by outside information that they don't want a description of anything that's happening outside of their immediate sensory range. And to me, in some games, that's just kind of boring. And we lose the ability to do cross-cutting or to do a montage of what the bad guys are doing as, as something is approached. So one thing to consider is just... How do players determine what their character is going to do? And again, make that conversation explosive. Do you have any thoughts on, on on stance before we kind of move on to mechanics?
1: A really crucial aspect of this is information, about in-character information and out-of-character information, where players, especially, like you said, the more actorly parts of this theory, you know, they want to be so immersed that I don't want to know anything that my character doesn't know. and And that's great. And I I like the impulse of wanting to immerse yourself in the role, right? That's a good thing. You should encourage that. But also, I think, you know, when you make like an off-color joke about like, oh, there's this element that, you know, so-and-so doesn't know about, you know, oh, or, you know, here's a reference to this thing. Those players can get sometimes irrationally upset about that. And you should be aware of that before you go into a game and you kind of act casual about, you know, in game and out of game information, if you want to really adhere to that, if you take that seriously, like, yeah, do it, it's fine. Like, that's, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But like you always say, Terry, expectations should be provided, you know, everyone should have a consensus on, uh, you know, approach your players with a degree of respect and just say, like, all right, what do you want out of this? Like, what? Are you okay with being privy to this? Or are you not? What's your stance? and just get an idea of like what they're going for. And if one player is like, well, you can't bring that up because that's meta, that's meta gaming." You know, we're also human beings outside of this, right? You're not a, a performer on theater or in front of a camera who's getting paid to be exclusively within that tiny little provincial space that's provided for them. You know, you're, you're with a bunch of friends. So I would say like, yeah, just just have some respect for players and like what they want because that will go a extremely long way in my opinion.
0: To me, it is useful to talk about this in terms of having a reminder to who is the audience. It is we playing with our friends or the other people at the table. Some things get to be for the players, and it doesn't need to always be through the perspective of the character. The character is just kind of our agent in the world in most cases. And by freeing up that assumption, I think you can have a lot of fun, or at least that is something I have found in my games. A separate conversation on whether or not we like stylized games or genre contrivances, but I think, as Huey says... Let's have that conversation. And the language of film and the language of game theory allows us to make that explicit. The next thing I have are a bunch of film mechanics in games. Some games use the language of film to create actual mechanics. For instance, a credit scene is a game mechanic whereby the players take turns highlighting what each person did to make the game happen. This is a useful way of saying, yeah, uh, this character didn't get a lot of screen time, but the thing they did was absolutely essential. And it's not uncommon while the credits are being showed that you're indicating who was responsible for the movie as well as having kind of highlight stills on what happened. In some games this is a way of handing out XP or a way of handing out willpower to be like, "Oh yeah, you did have that good moment or you did do that super useful thing." A pair of mechanics I very much like from Pasión de las Pasiones is next time on and last time on. In next time on, the players take turns pitching what they think could happen in the next session. The idea here is in uh telenovelas, it is not uncommon for the next time on to include things that didn't happen or that won't happen. In this case, if something happens roughly as depicted, the characters may receive a bonus. You may just receive the joy of knowing that you predicted something or inspired the storyteller to do something. Last time on is a way of reminding people what has happened and allows them to highlight what they thought was the most dramatic or impactful bits. This may be something that was not impressive to you where they bring up the NPC they particularly enjoyed or a moment of tension or drama. If the player focuses on a particular line or a character, that implies that they probably found them interesting. If you wanna mechanize this as a way to hand out experience points, willpower, or dice pool bonuses for something, That also is perfectly fine. A game that is highly filmic in terms of its inspiration is City of Mist, and one of the mechanics it has is the voiceover, which this is a noir game, and one of the tenets of the noir genre is characters rarely say directly how they're feeling, but their actions often betray them. So this is an opportunity for a character to share their direct thoughts. It lets you add a character-developed moment to the narrative that does not come from interacting with another person. This is very much a case of tell, don't show. And I don't know about anyone else, but I think that is a very useful shortcut in RPGs. When you have the time in writing to figure out how to weave a character moment into a story, that is great, but sometimes you just need to broadcast what you're thinking to get the game moving, and you may be dealing with a genre where the contrivances do not allow a character to directly spout what they're believing. This isn't necessarily a Disney movie where we have an I'm wishing song that kind of establishes the action. This is useful when a game wants your characters to have transparency with the play players, but not with other characters, or to just reveal a bit about who your character is that other people may find interesting. To me, this is also very useful in one-shots when you just want to get the action going. We talked about montages. This, to me, fits very well in with downtime extended role mechanics, whereby between sessions there's a rapid montage of what people have done spending XP or preparing. This is an opportunity to generate a dice pool. It gives a short micro-scene where characters just get to describe things. Generally, there won't necessarily be a roll to see if the action in the Montage is effective, but maybe to see how the outcome is, it may give additional opportunity to investigate, to provide a clue, or just to build backstory. Another thing that we can do in film that we can't really do in real life is have a flashback. The current action cuts to a previous time to provide information or context. Some games have this as a mechanic. My go-to for this is going to be Blades in the Dark, or as I need to pronounce it, Blades in the Dark, which has an extensive flashback mechanic that allows you to place in details or attempt to modify the scene as it goes. This is something to me that is useful in. Age to represent the mentor bas- past lives or dream mechanic. This is also something that was done by a friend of the show, the writers of the book uh, Assassins, which I think is pretty good. There are also other games that have a meta narrative bend to them, but that will kind of be outside the context for the purposes of this conversation. Do you have any particular filmic things that you feel should be turned into a, a mechanic? For what you mentioned uh,
1: at the top of that list, the kind of the highlight reel of what happened in every game, I I think every game should have this. I think if you have the little bit of time that you can provide at the end of a session to say, hey, everyone, like, what do we think was an interesting part of the game? or like, you know, who did the best role playing or this or that? If you can do that, you immediately create a sense of camaraderie and purpose in the game, because now you have the players reflecting on what they just did and thinking about it. At the end of a session, who's usually like, oh, I have to disengage and I have to be passive and you know, okay, well, that was fun. Now it's like, oh, no, no. But what did you think, right? No longer just, hey, I'm the GM. And I'm going to give you a unilateral idea of this happens. And this happens. And this is the one point of view that matters. Now it's, oh, hey, you're, you know, you're, you matter in this game, right? You're the player, you're acting, you know, around here, you're doing stuff. You know, what do you think mattered in this session? And also, spoiler alert, as a GM, you can just use that to steal from like if players tell you i like this guess what in the next couple sessions that thing is probably going to show up again if you're good at your job at all so it's a great way to hijack your brains of your players and get them to to spill the beans on what what could make the game better
0: And now the last section, which is where I want to uh, plumb Yui's massive understanding of film, is there are frequently ways in which films are listed as inspirations for Mage, and I hate this. Frequently, it depends on you already being familiar with the film to pull the reference that the author makes. M20 is particularly guilty of making references that presume you have already seen the film, making a comparison in such a way that someone who hasn't doesn't gain anything out of it, and not providing enough other information to figure out what it is so the way this is going to work is uh, we've broken it down into some kind of sections where are we stealing setting mood character or plot and the idea is what's the movie what happens in it how do we use this in our game so for instance my first one is the movie what dreams may come which has a depiction of heaven as a painting and for me this is a case of we are experiencing the domain of Haliara of the Woven Smile who sits in the Court of Spring. The spirits move through the air as if painted brush strokes, and as you step your feet slip slightly on what is the psycho-reactive paint of the place, all of your actions hang as if you were in a flip book, and you move from gesture to gesture suddenly as if in a low frame rate video game. Trying to move through the court, which only updates at two frames per second, is difficult at best, but you quickly find that voice seems to be in real time, allowing you to carry on vocal discourse without much difficulty. Uh, what Dreams May Come for me, I thought was visually beautiful and striking and interesting in terms of how do we depict heaven and and a potential hell. Yes. If the list doesn't get too long, I will list all of these as well in the show notes. Do you have a movie that to you uh, inspired setting that you think could be used in a mage game?
1: Yes. And when I think of movies, what I like to think of is in terms of what is the basic scenario that allows good role playing to arise. So when you talked about that, you talked about like, oh, this illustrates this idea really well. When I think about one of John Carpenter's many masterpieces, Assault on Precinct 13. This is a film where you have a very, very simple concept. You have a police station that's about to be decommissioned. There's like only a handful of people left inside. And it is under the target of this, you know, escape from New York, the Warriors-esque street gang, who then come in and they just lay siege to this kind of decrepit, old and busted uh, police station and everyone inside basically has to circle the wagons and defend this place. It was inspired by films like Night of the Living Dead, but wanted to place it in like a non-supernatural contemporary setting. With that basic idea, this is an idea that you can use for anything. You can use it for one session, like a one shot, maybe if you're just running like a short convention game or anything like that. Or you can use this as a climax or as this kind of end of session thing whatever you want to use this idea for you have you know good guys on the inside of a, a discrete location and then bad guys on the outside trying to get in and do something this basic structure is so applicable and if you watch the movie you can understand how to navigate that kind of space right so if you use a service like roll 20 or if you, you, know, you draw your own maps or if you just want to use pictures you can say all right this is what this looks like here's the space right the space That you're in, all the players are in, is going to be a character. And everything on the outside is the mysterious frontier unknown that's trying to intrude on this space. And in doing that, this is a way, a perfect way I found, that you can take players who don't necessarily always create concepts that are the most conducive for each other, a bunch of disparate concepts that don't really make sense to be together in a game. Suddenly, guess what? They're all in the same location, whatever it is. And they have to defend themselves. So even if they dislike each other, even if they have conflicts, they have to essentially find a way to become a group from this external pressure. So many GMs, I think, have trouble, you know, how do I make a game that makes sense for all these different concepts? Do this. Make a scenario like this, where it's very basic, very simple, and it causes relationships between characters to form because they're all stuck in this locale, right? So they all have to talk to each other to help help each other interact. And if they're all mages, especially if they're low power, kind of, you know, we don't know what we're doing mages, they have to rely on each other to do combined effects and to actually be able to surpass this overwhelming force from the outside that's trying to get in. So watch Assault on Priesting 13, and this is such a beautiful illustration. It's very simple, not very complicated at all, and you can use it for a variety of things in your game.
0: The next one I have for kind of setting is just the movie Constantine, which I appreciated. It is a Keanu Reams, Raquel Whites film where the titular character is a uh, kind of a renegade agent who is familiar with a war that is occurring between heaven and hell. And the movie contains a depiction kind of of hell or the Shadowlands and the supernatural. To me, from a setting perspective, the thing I liked about this movie is every supernatural element had a very distinctive visual style to it. When you're dealing with Gabriel or versus one of the demonic forces, there is a very distinct way in which it doesn't do the thing where we're dealing with a Nephondic dark labyrinth. It just has very dark, inflected style. You're dealing with dark woods. You're dealing with dark candles. You're dealing with poor illumination. Whereas on the angelic side, you're dealing with something that is almost antiseptic. And to me... I think that we can use this kind of setting and scene to reinforce things about a character that if someone has Cloak of the Seasons, or if someone has three dots of Tainted Resonance, this should affect the world around them, including what their furniture looks like. Frequently, we talk about the the, the body of an elemental or an Efreet or a Dijin, and Origin and we don't have the environment recapitulate who they are, and I think that is important as a way of kind of using other ways to transmit that information. The other thing that lets us do is that lets us have a world with a lot more supernatural elements in it where it's not so obvious, where you have people that are in human garb, but if you know how to look at the world, you can see all the the ways in which they are tipping their hand as to their true element. And if you're sufficiently subtle and it blends in with what a normal mortal would do, it's not one of those things where you're like, oh wow, this guy's obviously a vampire or something like that. Did you have any other setting inspiring games?
1: Maramura Oshi's Pat Labor 2. You don't need to see the first one really, or any of the other previous ones to understand what this one's going for. It's a film where the structure of it, I think, is A model for how I think a lot of mage games should be structured, at least the kind of games that I like to run, where you don't actually have a ton of fireworks. It's a movie where you have these, it's a universe where, okay, you have these giant robots that are used for, you know, tactical, like, missions and police action and all this stuff. It's a role that exists, but it doesn't treat those robots as if they're their own special thing that's the focus of the story. Quite the opposite. The robots actually kind of fade to the background and are only used in the climax already after all the characters have decided okay what's this mystery who's doing what what's this political reason who are the players in in the the scenario you know why do they want this they spend most of the movie as a political thriller then like in the last you know 10 to 20 minutes then they're like okay now we know what we want now we can exercise and marshal this huge asset that we have towards something that we want I think a lot of major games should play more into the fact that mages most of the time aren't going to be popping off effects every 15 seconds. So I think more mage games could be structured in this way in terms of a a setting where it's a setting where you actually have to think about what you want to do before you can do it. And once you do it, right, um, it doesn't have to be the climax of your game, right? But the principle of it is that you know, once you decide like, all right, this is exactly what we want. We've really thought about this. This is, you know, our, our political goal, you know, to uh, we're going to overthrow this house of the order of Hermes. If you want to do something like that, the lesson of patience, of really using the setting of mage and thinking through its implications of understanding mages are smart. So they're going to be working towards that all the time. and You're not going to just, you know, constantly be doing magic for the sake of doing magic, you know, if you're going to have a big effect, it has to mean something. It has to have a sense in the story that this is important.
0: The next thing to me is questions of mood. How does the environment inform us of how we should feel about something? And I have just one example of this, and the movie is The Art of Self-Defense, which to me is a inspiration for kind of the ridiculous ways in which people talking about paradigm and chantry politics can come up. This movie is filled with a kind of awkward, stilted dialogue that takes itself very steer- seriously. And all of the characters are both posturing and painfully... Ernest. At one point, the sensei of a female student says, I realize now that her being a woman will prevent her from ever becoming a man. And it's one of those things where in the moment it is true, but you take a quarter second and you're like, what? And this is something that I could very much see happening in a very large chantry or within your technocratic group where someone talks about the, um, the fact that we are not pure information prevents us from Uh, Achieving our ultimate form that of the number six and you're like okay i followed you kind of there's also a back and forth where one of the character goes what is your favorite musical style adult contemporary no it should be metal have you ever listened to metal you mean like hard rock no metal is much more aggressive than hard rock from now on you listen to metal and just kind of establishing these masculine tropes And I think this is a very good rapid-fire way of setting up a caricature which mages can sometimes be. I also kind of like this slightly awkward dialogue, which I think frequently happens in games, especially when you're dealing with something that is not human. If your dialogue with a fire elemental is not a little bit weird, I think you're kind of pulling your punches. It is also useful to kind of take yourself a little bit too seriously with paradigm for instance needing to learn the uh, akashic style of the unbent punch which you hear as being this legendary destructive thing but when you actually see it in practice is just the art of keeping your arms very straight and more or less slapping someone i think that can generate both moments of humor and moments of oh no we're actually playing this weird little game which i think is is also kind of important so do you have any, any any movies to you that very much convey a sense of mood
1: Yes. And for Mage, because it has so much a sense of possibility and openness, I think understanding the extremes of that with these two movies that I picked is important to just get get your foot in the door about like, okay, what is actually theoretically possible that I can achieve? Jean-Pierre Melville's Army of Shadows and Choi Hark's Zoo Warriors from the Magic Mountain are totally different ends of the spectrum of film, but that both could fit Within the idea of what made is about. Army of Shadows, which is a story about French resistance in World War II, you know, you have the ultimate underdogs against the terrifying, you know, monolith of the Nazi regime. And the resistance fighters have to be extremely cynical and pragmatic, and they live in a world of tough decisions and nothing ever goes their way. And they kind of, even at the end of the film, their idea of victory is just meeting the fascist regime like halfway, right? That's the best they can do. This is the gritty gothic punk that's kind of more vampire the masquerade and maybe even changeling than I would say mage is usually written as, but it's definitely in that DNA. And I would say if you're playing tradition mages and you really want to lean into that first edition, second edition idea of the technocracy as like they're everywhere, they have eyes and, you know, each, uh, you know facility on cameras they know all information they're tracking us like really lean into the the gothic paranoia and like we're we're the punks against this monolithic system watch army of shadows this will show you what that actually looks like what it is actually like to be the ultimate underdog who cannot catch a break because it is it is brutal and fear especially for low-power tradition mages that's the story it's the story of resistance on the other spectrum Zoo Warriors from the Magic Mountain by Choi Hark is wacky, insane, just completely bonkers, like, you know, ancient Chinese sorcery and and people having metaphysical battles with laser blasts and, you know, epic sword fights and, you know, jumping 100 feet in the air. And like, it's a Hong Kong wuxia film that engages with all the essential tropes of that exaggerated uh, kind of storytelling. And mage, I don't get hear. I don't hear a lot of people doing these kind of games, but it's definitely a part of it too. Like the first edition, it has the gritty stuff, but it also has the, oh, we're on Jupiter and we're fighting dinosaurs and you know, oh, here comes Cthulhu. You know, Zoo Race from the Magic Mountain is nothing but this vibe. When people fight in Zoo Race from the Magic Mountain, they're fighting over like battling over the spiritual essence of the earth and of time and of history. You know, it's big mage concepts high level, you know, arch mastery, you know, like kind of stuff that Mage doesn't have a lot of a toolkit for. But when you see it portrayed, you can understand like, it's still melodramatic. It's still interesting. It doesn't have to be cartoonish, because the movie does a good job of showing like, no, they're actually battling over ideas that matter over things that are important. They're just high concept, outsized battles over ideas, but the ideas still matter to people, right?
0: Now, are these movies where if you don't want to sit down and watch the whole thing, if I pull up some stills on Pinterest, that is going to give me an idea of the aesthetic or does it really only unwind in the watching?
1: Oh, I mean both. Really, if you take a look at a still frame from Army of Shadows or Zoo Warriors, you know exactly what kind of movie it is because Zoo Warriors is, you know, low angle shots and make everything look big and huge and epic. Army of Shadows is dour cold, you know, very blue, very melancholy, very French, you know. Yeah, if you look visually, just in any way, you'll understand what these approaches are. And that's like kind of the two spectrums of the world of darkness, the high cosmic and the the gothic punk that I think, you know, if you understand both of those, then you can navigate like, oh, okay, well, maybe I want something in between. And then you can go for that from there.
0: The next kind of selection I have is characters. And my first one is Anton Sugar from No Country for Old Men. Anton Sugar is presented as an utterly remorseless psychopath who to the point where the Journal of Forensic Scientists labeled him the most realistic depiction of psychopathy in movies. Uh, He uses a coin to see if people live or die, kills quite aggressively with a captive bolt rifle. And to me, this is something that we can take just as a character that has succumbed to morbidity and Stasis, a amoral assassin that takes jobs and uses a coin flip to determine if someone should be put down. To me, this is kind of interesting, especially if the group has a mage that takes advantage of sortilage or random foci to divine action. And we can have this cut between this character flips a coin to see if someone lives or dies. How is that different from pyretic bone casting to determine if someone is guilty or or innocent, and I think that cut between the two is is pretty powerful, played by Javier Bardem. One of the worst haircuts in human history, impressively so. What was a character to you that you wanted to take from a movie and put just kind of in a game?
1: For me, I think I wanted to orient this answer towards players and mm-hmm. how they present characters within Mage. Um, I think a lot of it comes down to oh, well, this is how you know my character is, and there's this idea of description and you know what you say with your words during the game. But I think players should utilize description more heavily than they do in general. I think the players should take the reins of that storytelling device. And the movie that I think really shows you how you can do this is Raiders of the Lost Ark. Just the opening, like, you know, 10 to 15 minutes, I forget how long. Just look at the way that Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones is portrayed. What he does, he actually barely says any dialogue. And what you can do in game is... Having his actions, and then visually they're described to us in the film, and then you can describe them as your character is doing them. So before he goes into this mysterious, kind of dark, cobwebbed over temple that's, you know, that he's been searching for, trekking through this jungle, this dangerous environment, before he even goes in there, the rest of the crew just kind of wants to, you know, go in there. Oh, let's get it over with. Let's just go. He stops, he picks up like a bunch of sand. And when you watch it the first time, you're like, why is he picking up a whole bunch of sand? He puts it in a little bag, a little pouch on his his belt. And you're like, what is that even for? And then later, when he goes into the temple, gets to all these traps, then he sees that the statue is on a pressure plate that he wants to kind of get the statue, but without moving the sense of pressure on the pressure plate, because he doesn't know what's going to happen when he takes it, the, the thing off and what the reaction will be from the rest of the temple. So he takes out the bag of sand but he doesn't just put it on there. He kind of like eyeballs it. He measures the weight with the statue, takes some of the sand out and then puts it and swaps it on. Now he gets it wrong, right? And he doesn't, you know, the trap still goes off, but that's not the point. If you as a character can describe your actions in a way where it shows your character's intentions in what you're doing and not through just saying, oh, GM, this is what I want to do. No, just say my character does this in this particular way. And using that art of description of showing us, not just telling us what you're going to do, that adds so much flavor to the game, unbelievably enriches it. If you can visually tell it to us in our mind's eye, like the way that Steven Spielberg does with Indiana Jones, where you understand, oh, he's, a, you know, he's intelligent, he's prepared, he understands the scenario he's in, and he's constantly thinking ahead. We just understand it because we see his actions. We're trusting... That whatever is being shown to us is important, right? And if you're playing a character, you know, whether it's an NPC or a PC, doing that level of description of showing intention through action goes a long way, I think.
0: And this is something very much where we get to choose the cadence and length of that. This can be how we introduce the characters before our first session, as it were, like during a a preamble or what have you. This is something where you can hand it over entirely to the player to just describe uh, a whole bunch of cool actions or to something where a storyteller can use guided prompts to do this. What is the coolest way in which you showed that you were highly familiar with stone lore? What is the interesting maneuver you did that disabled the guard effortlessly as you were walking in? What is the flourish that indicates that you knew the 127 names of um Mothica or something like that. And it is something you can very much hand to the player to fill in if they are comfortable with that.
1: Something to this effect that has always rung true with me is that I think David Mamet, the, the playwright, said that there's nothing better in a story that we like to see than someone being good at their job. And if you're a mage, you should be good at something. Mages don't live long who don't <laughs> have a, a, a skill with what they're trying to accomplish. So if you're, if you're the the gothed out hollow one, let's hear about like how you're gothed out. Let's hear the makeup routine. Let's hear the, you know, the choice of music as you, you know, roll up in your car, you know, use the semblance of action to paint us a picture.
0: The next one I had was the movie I Heart Huckabees. And this kind of, to me, gave me the interplay of paradigmic examples of people who believe in something. Uh, The movie did, picks a person hired as an existential detective to kind of sort out someone else's life. And in the process, they don't have some success. The character who had hired them gets some setbacks, meets this other character that is kind of this nihilist absurdist. And the movie is kind of the interplay between those people advocating for their view of the world. To me, this could turn into a game in that you are contacted by a high-powered sleeper who is seeking spiritual counsel to get advice on ethical action. Maybe it occurs because your character has the cult background and someone thinks that they are particularly clarifying in terms of the way that they live their life. Uh, contemporaneously, a syndicate member, and a fondus an infernalist, a opposing tradition, a member of a craft, is kind of vying for this person's attention. We now have two mages that are directly opposed to each other and... This is a case where it's probably going to be settled in dialogue as opposed to in magic because there's just another mage there. And this is a goal to not transmit a paradigm so much as a moral worldview. The idea of there being zealous advocates for a particular way of seeing the world and someone being caught between them is... Very mage to me. Uh, Were there any other key characters or uh, uh, movie figures that you thought were particularly interesting?
1: Yes. Michael Mann's last Mohicans, West Studi's portrayal of the First Nations warrior Magua, is my go-to standard for how to do an antagonist. Because this is a movie where Magua as the antagonist doesn't really emerge as antagonist until the second half. And that's because he essentially is just as justified in what he does as the main characters. He's acting out of a semblance of revenge, and what he does is brutal and terrible, but he's had brutality inflicted on him in equal turn. And you, at the end of the movie, you cannot even really question what he sought to accomplish because he presents it in such a, a forceful understanding of his own internal worldview. And I think a lot of people don't know what to do with antagonists. They're, they should not just be uh, a cartoon villain. If you watch Last of the Mohicans, understand that it provides as much to Magua as it does to the main characters. And by giving him that grace and by giving him that storytelling capacity and by saying, no, you're you're a valid character. It doesn't say that what he does is right, but what it says is this happens on an equal playing field. He's a human being. If you're big bad as the Nefandus... They should have an idea of what they're doing um doesn't mean that they have to be like a good person because that kind of negates the point of them being an antagonist you should put yourself in their shoes and be like well why would i do all these terrible things and say like well if push came to shove and i had i really felt this and i had this happen to me watch last mohicans he has terrible things happen to him and that brutality forces him to become a brutal person that's the source of antagonism i think that really drives the heart of that film from something that's just like a fun adventure tale to a good examination of morality
0: whereas interestingly i generally take the opposite i am perfectly comfortable with cartoonish villains because i think one of the important things in mage is that quiet exists and paradigm is weird everyone has their reasons from the outside it doesn't seem to make any sense and sometimes people just look unhinged i also agree that it's perfectly reasonable to have some quality time in the deep end of that swimming pool
1: to that point actually i agree with you what i just want to say is you, the GM, should think about it. Even if the players don't understand that the NPC, the antagonist, has intentions that they have you know, a sense of internal life, even if that never comes to the fore with them, you should still understand that this is happening for a reason. It should make sense to you at the very least if you're doing that.
0: And the last one, are. Our- Plots. Movie plots are notoriously difficult to steal from because as Huey mentioned earlier, we are not directors, we don't have the ability to dictate how things are going. But to me, they can often give an interesting starting point. And the one I'm thinking of is the movie Stranger Than Fiction, which involves a number of characters that turn out to be kind of characters in someone else's novel. And the question is, how can the person end the novel in such a way that everyone thrives without betraying their artistic integrity in that this is a writer whose protagonists frequently die in in a game, the characters or someone near them is being narrated by a disembodied voice. This could be a umbral lord, a pred- a paradox spirit, or they've fallen sway under a potent artifact or wonder. The characters now need to find a way to persuade the author to end the story in a particular way. You may have Lennon on lord of tragedy who has kind of taken over your characters in some sort of trade or has sway over an avatar or a mortal who is associated with a cult of some sort. And it is not something where you are freeing them from the grass so much as convincing them to put their artistic work into another direction. I wouldn't be, it would be reasonable to me to have a, uh, a five dot wonder, a narrative pen of truth or something like that, that tends to create Potent entropy effects that cause it to go in a particular direction. That is currently in the possession of a sleeper who is trying to establish themselves as a uh, as a fiction writer. Uh, and that is a story that, to me, you can kind of just dump as a starting point into a game. How about you, Yui? I
1: think there are several films that do a good job. That Mage doesn't always hit the mark on in the the prose writing of the books of showing the contrast between the magical, you know, kind of wackadoo world and the mundane sleeper world. And I think that interaction should happen more where you shouldn't just have everything be all right, we're just going to have a fun game in the umbra and you know, we're just kind of totally out there and we have no sense of normalcy. That's fun, but there should be an element of like earthly awareness of like all right, here's like some actual stakes. So, George Armitage's Gross point blank from 1996 with John Cusack as the lead titular uh, <laughs> assassin. He is a character who has basically, for the past ten years of his life since he graduated high school, has existed in the covert world of you know government uh, intrigue and assassinations and black ops stuff and you know mercenary affairs. And so he's basically become kind of a, a detached, uh, very depressed person. He gets invited to his high school reunion. And the comedy and the the interesting dynamics that result from this guy who kills people for a living and is just kind of a psychopath, but then he has to go back to his old town that he left behind a decade ago and say, oh, hi, it's nice to see you. How are you doing? Oh, man, oh, you have kids. That's great. When he has essentially not led any semblance of a normal life, I think this actually shows you a great way to incorporate sleepers into your mage game, which you know seems like something that would easily fall away from your priorities. Where you're like, I want to show the mage stuff in such vivid detail and I want to get into all these factions. Cool, right? We want to do that, but also I think it's things are illustrated through contrasts, all right? You can describe what something truly is by showing its contrast, by showing, All right, this is what this isn't, and by John Cusack's character existing. In this kind of mundane, you know, Detroit suburb and having to go back to this life that he left behind, he becomes essentially, you know, it's a fish out of water story, but it's also him bringing all his baggage with him, right? So now, you know, assassins who want to take him out of the picture are following him back to his town and trying to kill him. And he has to kind of hide all this happening while he's still trying to play the idea of normalcy that he's still a normal guy. So there's these gunfights and explosions happening. But then he has to be like, ah, oh, but let's you know go to the punch bowl and let's talk about you know when you stuff me into that locker and that, that kind of thing. Take this plot, and this would be inherently funny and interesting in a mage scenario where it's like, yes, I am. Uh, I have become you know a member of House Bonnie sages, and you know I have gone to Horizon and I have achieved all these things, and I am a you know so and so in this sphere, and da da da. And then it's like, oh yeah, by the way, like here's a family reunion. Here's a Kind of a social function. Here's, you know, you got you get invited to a wedding, right? Of your sleeper cousin. And he's like, Hey, we haven't talked in a while. Like, why don't you come over? Then that character, and then the players also get involved, the rest of the group. And then it becomes the hermetic mage trying to be like, Oh man, in all this time that I've spent trying to learn magic, I've never actually had time for regular human relationships or you know, <laughs> falling in love with anyone or doing something like that. And detailing that scenario, what your your player is, but then just having that contrast of being like, all right, yes, we can have all these, you know, wacky fun things, but now you actually have to understand the reality of sleepers, and you have to bring in all the the highfalutin mage stuff into their lives. So they don't know anything about this. Do you inform them? Do you bring them in on this? Do you like keep it from them? The conflict that arises from that really can develop three-dimensional players, player characters, what actually is the world of darkness? It's not just the supernatural. It's the supernatural contrasted with the
0: normal. Are there any other films or ideas that you think people should particularly look at or any other ideas that kind of came up to you as we went through this?
1: Um, I would just say as a basic philosophy, if you take inspiration from a film at all, understand that the camera's pointed at something because the director thinks it's necessary. If you focus on something in the game, whether as a player or as a GM, it doesn't matter. It should be conceived of by you as necessary. You should really think about, put a lot of thought into, what do I need? What can I cut? You should really understand it like a film. What is a necessary scene? What actually needs to happen for the story I want to tell? If you have like a cool idea for something like, oh, there's a fun side thing, maybe include it, but also really think about, do I actually need this or would the story be better without it? take a sense of artistic integrity in what you present, just like a film director does, and your games will be markedly improved, because you'll develop a sense of discipline and what you actually want, and you'll understand your own desire better for what you want to portray in the game, whether you're a player or a GM. Um, I would just say for mage movies that are just, in general, like, if you want to understand what mage is, basically, The Matrix, Crow, Dark City, any of the John Wick movies, like, if you want to understand the kind of crazy metaphysical stuff that mage can get into watch dark city and you're like okay now we're on you know we're on cloud nine you know a million miles from earth and you know the earth is flat and who knows what's happening right can shock you out of this kind of mindset of like i'm a wizard and i you know again i throw a fireball no but it's not that's not the foundation it's the weird it's the it's the dissonance between again reality and your own perspective that Dark City does a really good job of portraying. And The Matrix is The Matrix. I love all those movies. But really, the first one is probably the one that if you just want to see what the technocracy is, the technocracy is Agent Smith. If you want to, you know, (laughs) if you want to see what uh, the traditions are, people like Neo and Trinity and Morpheus, who are, you know, underground resistance fighters, and, you know, they're all individualists and this kind of thing. The Crow, the Crow is a World of Darkness movie, 100%. They constantly reference it in the books, constantly, and for a good reason, because it's essentially, when they do a depiction, a description of what gothic punk is, it's The Crow. It's totally like music video, you know, uh, smoke machines and rain and, and graveyards and ambience and people wielding two guns and trench coats. It's classic World of Darkness. Even if you don't like that stuff, I would just say watch it just so you have a context of like... Basically, what they were going for in the '90s when they wrote these games originally, the John Wick movies. If you want to show again the kind of surreal nature of having these sub-real underground organizations like the traditions and, and the crafts and everything, if you want to show how they function in broad daylight or broad nightlight, as it were, uh, the John Wick movies show you like societies have their own internal logic. They don't exist in the the regular mundane reality, but not even the sense of like mafia because in John Wick, they're almost like esoteric orders who, you know, trade coins and you know have all these different phrases and have their own like weird organization. So, you know, and John Wick, when they talk about the high table, you know, then you can get to like that's how they refer to the Horizon Council in Mage. We're trying to exist in this world that has all this treachery and mystery to it. Great just World of Darkness movie in general. But for Mage, just showing how those organizations function, I think it does a really good job of.
0: Well, thank you. If people are interested in following your thoughts on movies, where can they do that?
1: Yeah, you can find me at Comrade Yui, uh, Comrade underscore Yui on Letterboxd, on Twitter, on Patreon, on YouTube, um, and all those platforms. You can just search that up and I'll be there. Um, I write about movies. I make videos about movies. I Constantly say new stuff. And just in general, yeah, uh, I run major games on occasion that I do talk about. But in general, you know, when I take inspiration, it's often from, you know, what in the last six months have I watched that I'm really passionate about? And I say, all right, I don't want to do that, but I want to do something like that.
0: Well, awesome. Yui, thank you so much for joining us.
1: No, thank you, Terry.
0: This has been Made's the Podcast, where we totally would have watched your student film, but we were busy that day. Appropriately, our executive producers include Josh Hillerup, Oracle of Moody Films That Are a Meditation on Motherhood Buck Farmer, Oracle of Moody Films That Are a Meditation on Intergenerational Trauma Christopher Phillips, Oracle of Moody Films That Are About Preserving Your Identity Within a Larger Culture Mikhail, Oracle of Moody Films That Are About the Difficulty of Connecting with Someone Jay Widener, Oracle of Moody Films that are about the loneliness of modernity, and The Crew of Erebus, Oracle of musical rom-coms. I said in the last episode that I would send out One Point Wonders to any Oracle supporter that had been with us for six months. It was pointed out to me that the Patreon said three. So anyone who joined under the window where it said three, I'm going to send out those. I'll be reaching out for addresses, and then I am switching it over going forward. Regardless, thank you for support. Additionally, I'd like to thank the rest of our executive producers Alex, Alexia, Andrews S., Andrew Edelstein, Anon, Burdo, Blaze Hibbert, Boo, Boogers, 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 boogers Brad of the Blue, Bryce Perry, Chris B., Daniel Cuppin, Daniel Scribner, Dan Svensson, David Roy, Dennis Osborne, Derek Semsek, Gargoyle Noir, George Larr, Guy Conan Stewart, Ea Bull, Jason Kennedy, Jason W. Briggs, Jeff Brin, Jenna F., John Magnuson, Joshua Heath, Kathleen Halperin, Leslie Weatherstone, Matthew Proyle, Michael Creedle, Michael Parker, Morgan Aron, Nathan Weaver, Nabero, Neil Patterson, Nikita Klamanov, Oliver Schindler, Patrick McNamara, Patrick Mulder, G, Rachel Grace, Ralph Scheinhammer, Ricardo, Richard Bat Brewster, Robart the Robot, Rob H., Ryan Kendy, Samuel Tobin, Stephen Carton, Thrice Great, William Connolly, William Martin, and Zach Rules. Our EP shout-out is to Daniel Scribner, who I assume is the son of Charles Scribner, founder of the Scribner Publishing Company in 1846. As I said, son, this would likely either make Daniel over 150 years old or Charles Scribner himself over 200 years old, in which case I'm divided over whether or not they are mages, mummies, or vampires. I'm going to say they're vampires of an esoteric bloodline and instead of consuming blood, consumes only the ink from unpublished manuscripts. Maybe they're actually a mummy that gets secum from these manuscripts, but there were so many Twilight ripoffs that they think they're vampires now. In either case, thank you. If you super liked this episode or super didn't, drop us a line at podcast at gmail.com or at podcast on Twitter. We have a hop in Discord community at discord.me slash the podcast if you like us please give us a review on the platform you're choosing or tell a friend about us also go to podcast.com for show notes and all of our previous shows now go change reality bye
1: um okay before i get into auteur three, real quick terry every episode of mage the podcast you always never fail to include a bit about cocaine and and i appreciate that because <laughs> in the spirit of filmmaking the the cooked up <laughs> cinematic experience has generated many uh, inspirational ideas for the it- table i feel
0: the 11th Sphere,
1: yep. Yeah, definitely, definitely. <laughs> Once you're done with guns, then you can ascend to the, the real truth. <laughs> exactly. Um, o- one is the mundane
0: so- version of forces, the other is the mundane version of time, seemingly.
1: Oh, there we go.